This episode, we talk about the conversations surrounding schools reopening amidst the coronavirus shutdowns and how the national conversation is missing a lot of the bigger picture for our kids. We also talk about the Little Sisters of the Poor Supreme Court case and what that means for Americans. My name is Jacqueline, and I am just an American. A big topic of conversation this past week was in regards to schools reopening across the country. As summer is coming to a close and we are looking forward to the fall, there is this huge question of whether or not schools are going to be able to reopen with any sense of normalcy for the new academic school year. One of the reasons why this was a big topic this week is because President Trump weighed in on it, calling for schools to reopen. But another reason is because a lot of the districts are actually starting to come out with their plans for the new school year. For some places across the country, the school year might not start until after Labor Day on a more traditional schedule. But in many places, such as here in California where I live, our school year is scheduled to start on August 6th, which is just around the corner. Some districts have decided because of the rising number of coronavirus cases and positives in certain places, then some of the districts have decided that they are going to only do online learning at the beginning of the school year. Some have decided to do uh, some sort of a hybrid model where half of the students go for either two days a week and the other half for another two days a week. Or some go in the a.m. and some go in the p.m. just to try and limit the amount of people who are coming into contact with each other. A lot of these districts are calling for students to wear masks all day and have just different kind of situations such as no recess. The students have lunch by themselves at their desks, no assemblies, no library, no group activities, no sports. And one official, one school district official for I believe it was the Santa Ana County School District, said that young children will just have to learn to play alone. So these are the kinds of things that they're talking about. There's a lot of parents who are planning on just homeschooling their children. There are a lot of parents who can't do that because they have to go to work or their children, you know, have certain needs that they special needs, for example, that need more professional education than what parents are trained and able to do at home. There are so many things about this conversation that there's so many different aspects of it. And it's everything from a public health aspect to a political aspect to, you know, what parents want, what educators want. Another big part of the problem is that you have teachers unions who are standing up and just basically saying, no, the teachers are not going back into the classroom. And so they're having to deal with that situation as well. There's a couple of things I want to talk about in regards to this issue. So as somebody who has two children who are school-aged and as someone who also has worked in elementary schools, I've worked as a substitute teacher for the last three years, so I have spent a lot of time in elementary schools. There's a few things about this that I want to talk about today. First of all, a lot of the things that I'm hearing out of these superintendents and a lot of these plans are just so unworkable and unrealistic. The idea that you are going to be able to have school children as young as four and five years old wearing a mask for anywhere from three to six hours a day is just, it's just laughable. When the CDC came out with their mask recommendations and said, you know, hey, you should probably wear masks to help stop the spread of coronavirus or slow the spread of coronavirus. One of the things that they 
really pushed and or advocated was it's important to not touch the mask because if you touch your mask with your hand that has germs on it, you now have germs on the mask that you are breathing in nonstop. We know that these kids are going to touch their masks nonstop. I just, I feel so sorry for the teachers who are going to have to be health department police in addition to all of the things that they do as teachers to number one, educate children, number two, keep them safe, and number three, just engage with them on a social level. Another thing that I think is important to take into account is how this is really affecting our children. And this is something that unfortunately, I feel like too many people just haven't really stopped to think about how this entire situation has affected our children. Kids need routine. They need structure. They need a sense of normalcy. And the I know I understand these school districts are caught between a rock and a hard place because on the one hand, they've got parents like me who are, you know, like I am not sending my kids to school in masks all day and forcing my young children, my kindergartner to play by herself at recess time. But on the other hand, they're dealing with parents who are saying who are concerned about their kids bringing home coronavirus. Maybe these are, you know, families that have grandparents living with them or the parents have underlying health conditions and they're concerned about that. So I understand these school districts are caught between a rock and a hard place, but I think that some of the proposals that they are coming out with just are completely unrealistic. And I have yet to talk to a parent or a fellow educator who thinks that any of these hybrid models, any of these social distancing rules that there are going to be implemented in the classroom are going to actually work. Now, one of the things that I think is important to keep in mind is that coronavirus is not particularly dangerous for children. As we are having this conversation, there are a lot of people who are commenting and who are, you know, out there talking about this saying, you know, anybody who wants to send their kids back to school that you just do not care about the health and safety of our children. That is a straw man argument. This virus has proven to not in any sort of statistically important way affect children in, you know, in a serious and severe way. That doesn't mean that there are not children out there who have gotten very sick from coronavirus. It does not mean that there are not children who have died from coronavirus. But the reality is, is that the odds of that happening to a healthy child that does not have underlying health conditions is astronomically low. That is a fact. And whenever anybody tries to bring up that fact, you will have people who will start posting all of these heartbreaking pictures of children who are in the hospital, uh, very, very sick because of, you you know, complications from coronavirus. But that anecdotal information or anecdotal accounts are not statistical accounts. And we have to make decisions as an entire society and as an entire nation based on statistical information, based on the science. You know, all of these people keep saying, oh, we have to do based on this. Look at the science. Look at the data. Well, according to the science and according to the data, this virus is far less deadly to children than the normal flu that takes place every single year for which we do not shut down the schools. I'm not saying that the virus is not more dangerous for older people. It is demonstrated to be particularly dangerous among people who are over 80 years old. People over 44, 45 years old have more you know, difficulties with it. But people who are under the age of 25, and in particularly children, are not having severe reactions to this in any sort of statistically significant number. Right off the bat, you know, there's people who are throwing these things out there and it's like, okay, we have to put that into context. The other thing that I'm seeing a lot that people are doing, and I think it is so symptomatic of a, a deeper problem in our culture right now and the way that we have conversations about important issues is this really 
kind of dismissive argument and attitude that people have about the effects that these lockdowns are having on our children. You see, I mean, ever since this started, I have seen meme after meme after meme on social media talking about how parents are just losing our minds because our children are home all day. And as a parent to three young children, I'm not going to lie. Yes, there it's definitely been challenging to have the kids home day after day after day, not so much because they are home with me, but because there's nowhere for me to take them. If children such as mine are used to having a very active life where they go to school and they go to after school activities and, you know, sometimes we take them to theme parks and sometimes we take them to the zoo and whatnot, when all of a sudden that just stops cold turkey for months and you know months on end. This is four months now that we are going through all of this. That is going to have an effect on kids. Kids are going to start getting cabin fever and they are going to start feeling a little bit crazy. I mean, adults that I have talked to have expressed those same challenges and all of that is just 10 times worse in children. But you see these memes and you see all of the stuff, you know, one of the ones I saw recently was, are we buying back to school clothes in August or are we buying more alcohol? Does anybody know? You know, things like that. That's all fine. You know, we can all have a good laugh about it. But deeper than that, and underneath all of that is this mentality that a lot of people are are expressing, saying, you know, if you are concerned about your kid not being in school, if you are concerned about children in our culture missing out on school, that is just because you are a crappy parent, that you are, you know, someone who had kids, but who doesn't want to deal with your own children. You are somebody who just doesn't want the responsibility. You don't want to you know, take care of your own kids and you just really need to get over it. And they also blame the parents. Like if your kids are having a hard time with this, with the fact that they were kicked out of school, from one moment to the next with the fact that they have had all of their sports canceled and all of their after-school activities canceled. If you're concerned about that, if you are upset about that, or if your kids are having a hard time about that, that just says that you're a crappy parent who isn't making this fun and exciting for your children. And it's just a really terrible thing that we do in our culture, again, is this thing that we attack people's motives. If you believe that the schools should stay closed, If you believe that sports should remain canceled because of the public health difficulties that would arise from reopening those things, you can make that argument. That's fine. Make that argument. Explain why you feel the way you feel. But the parents of these students or, you know, the educators who are looking at, for example, their high risk students who are expressing concern about these kids who have not had education, you know, any sort of education since March, who, you know, are not participating in any of these activities, those people are not just doing so because they're being lazy and they don't want to deal with these kids. Those people are doing so because there are serious ramifications for what we are doing to our current generation of children right now. So for example, you know, look, here's the reality. My kids are going to be fine. My kids are going to be fine because I have worked in education and I am planning on homeschooling my kids for the next school year because again, I'm not sending them to school in masks to play by themselves. So I am planning on homeschooling my kids. My kids are going to be fine because I know how to teach them and I'm going to stay on top of teaching them. And we are kind of approaching it like, all right, we're going to have, we're going to, this is a new adventure for us to go through as a family. But There are a lot of students out there who are not in that situation, and those students are going to be hurt by this. I think I saw a statistic that in the Los Angeles County um, School District, there was about 40% of students never once participated in any of the virtual learning from March through the end of the last school year, which was the end of May, beginning of June. 40% of students did not participate. And 
there's a variety of reasons why people, why students might not participate. Maybe they did not have internet access at home. Maybe their parents are, you know, working or working multiple jobs and they're not able to sit down with their students to make sure that their students are doing their schoolwork. There are situations where you have, you know, parents who are, English is their second language and there's only so much that they can help their students with distance learning, for example. And there is another reason why students might not, you know, be participating, which is that their parents are neglectful, that their parents don't take their education seriously or don't worry about their education, and they're just not going to do it. And the reality is, is that for those children, public school and public education is their only chance. That is their only chance of, you know, having some semblance of success in life. For all of the people who are downplaying the cancellation of schools and the cancellation of even more particularly of sports and after school programs, because I've seen that a lot too. people who, who sit there and say, oh, big deal. Your kid can't play soccer, you know, for for this season, like get over it. It's not a big deal. Here's the, the thing. Yes, for some kids who it's just a form of entertainment. Fine. But the reality is, is that there's a reason why we have a public school system in America. There is a reason why we have sports programs, why we have after-school programs. There is a reason why when you have people who are trying to do good and help out young people who live in underprivileged neighborhoods and neighborhoods that are you know, in poverty and gang infested and all of these things, there is a reason why those people go into those neighborhoods and what do they do? They establish after-school programs. They establish basketball leagues. They establish things and organizations and activities for students to participate in after school so that those kids are doing something productive and they are not getting in trouble. They are not just after school free to roam around and, you know, get recruited by gang members and get involved in drugs and get involved in petty crime. There is a reason why all of this stuff exists. And if there is a reason why all of this stuff exists, then when you take all of this stuff away, there are going to be consequences to it. And that is something that we all really need to come to terms with. The reality is, is that there are gaps in this country between kids who are raised in upper and middle class families and kids who are raised in families who live in poverty and in families who live in, you know, really poor and underprivileged neighborhoods. And the reality is, is that this situation is going to make that gap bigger. This situation is going to increase the gap between the kids whose parents are able to sit down with them every single day, who have a parent who's able to sit down with them every single day and make sure that they are learning, make sure that they're getting their schoolwork done and that this is not a wasted time for them and those kids who are not. What about, the, you know, there's also the situation of parents who are really good parents and they're good people, but they have to go to work. They have to go to work in order to support their families and to put food on the table. And this is something that my husband and I were talking about recently, but there's a difference too between elementary age kids and middle and high school age kids. You might have a situation where, okay, if a parent has a six-year-old, they now are going to have to figure out childcare for that six-year-old and that childcare might include some sort of school help or tutoring. But how many people are going to be able to spend hundreds of dollars a month extra on childcare for a 13 or a 14 year old? Most people just either are not going to be able to do it or they're just not going to do it because, you know, your child's 14, they can stay home alone. They're 15, they can stay home alone. But here's the reality. How many of those kids are going to actually 
you know, do their schoolwork all day long. What we are going to see is this is an, a sharp increase in young children who are going to spend all day, every day on video games, on YouTube, just doing this mind numbing, you know, screen time. And there's going to be long term ramifications of this. I'm not talking about any of this stuff because I'm advocating in one way or another what we should do. Okay, the public health officials and the government, they're going to do what they're going to do. They're going to make their decisions regardless of, you know, what parents are going to say about it. One of the things that I just want to really hammer home in this discussion is the fact that this stuff is going to have consequences. And these consequences are going to be catastrophic. When we talk about coronavirus and the lockdowns, again, one of the things that I have heard from a lot of people is just this downplaying of the damage that is being done by keeping society locked down. The unemployment numbers, the businesses that are closing, many of which are permanent. I talked about it in a previous episode, people who are dealing with a sharp increase in mental health issues and emotional health issues. These are all things that have serious consequences. And yet what we hear from so many people is give me a break. Okay, these are all first world problems. Stay home, watch Netflix, and chill. And this is the same thing that I'm hearing from people in regards to the school discussion is people who are sitting here saying, you know what, what's the big deal? Just keep your kid home. They're going to be just fine. And again, I bring it back to why do we have public schools in the first place? Why do we have after school programs and sports in the first place? There are students out there who deal, who have behavioral issues. They have emotional issues. And, you know, I I remember recently talking to somebody who was telling me that she had a son and, you know, boys need a lot of physical outlets for them to get their energy out. And she was saying that when she signed her kid up for, I think it was soccer after school, and she would take him three days a week to soccer, and she noticed a huge improvement in his ability to concentrate at school, in his behavior overall. And at the end of the day, at bedtime, he was tired and he would go to sleep and he would get a good night's sleep. And it really made a difference for him. So these are serious consequences. And While we're looking at this situation with coronavirus and while we are looking at how we are moving forward and how we are handling it, these are concerns that should not be easily dismissed. You can disagree with the position that schools should be opened, although I I will put in a note to say that it's fascinating how many people suddenly more vehemently started disagreeing with this when Donald Trump came out in support of schools opening up. That's another thing that we need to really pay close attention to is this idea of is it that you don't think that schools, you know, should open up, which Again, you might have very good reasons for believing that. But do you find yourself that you believe that now or you believe that more strongly now because you hate Donald Trump and he came out in support of this? I think that that is something that we have seen a lot of. However, um, that does not mean that people don't have legitimate concerns and legitimate reasons for wanting the schools to stay closed. But I just think that as we go through this and as we're having this conversation, we have to ask ourselves, okay, what are the consequences if we open up? and make the schools open up? And what are the consequences if we don't? When they are talking about things like, you know, students having to play by themselves, students having to wear masks, students having to, you know, not being able to have, again, library time and normal recess time and assembly time and field trips and all of these things, that is not 
in my opinion, a healthy environment for children to go back to. That is not a healthy environment for children to go into where they are being told on a regular basis, you need to stay six feet away from your friends. You need to play by yourself. You know, you see all these other little kids around here that you really want to play with because that's what kids do when they get together. They want to play together. Yeah, you can't play together. You cannot, you have to stay away from each other. It's fascinating to me because before coronavirus, we were, I think, making really good progress in this country in terms of having conversations about mental health and emotional health and, you know, what is the best situation for our children to be in. And it's just really sad to me that all of those things have gone completely out the window. It is really sad to me that the overall well-being of our children, who, again, are not at any sort of statistically significant danger from this virus, it is really sad to me that their well-being overall, emotional, physical, everything, is just gone completely out the window because the only thing in this country that matters right now is a virus that has over a 99% survival rate. Again, I am not calling for anything specific to happen because these people who are in charge are going to make their own decisions about it. But I think it's really important for us to take a step back and understand that every single decision that we make has consequences. And the consequences for our children from this entire situation from beginning all the way to right now are going to be severe. And we are going to be, I think, dealing with a lot of these consequences in the future. I want to talk a little bit right now about a Supreme Court case that was decided this past week that raised some controversy. It was a case involving the Little Sisters of the Poor, which is a Catholic charity group of nuns. Okay, so these are nuns. And what they focus on is on providing hospice care to people who are very poor or people who don't have family or friends around them. They provide them comfort and companionship and attempts at providing them some sense of peace as these people are in their dying days. So that is what they do. And when the Affordable Care Act passed and it was mandated by, not by the law, which is important, but by executive order that all insurance plans had to provide contraception to the employees, uh, the Little Sisters of the Poor said, um, we don't want to do that because we are Catholic and Catholics are morally opposed. It is a part of the religion that they're morally opposed to contraception. So the court case was decided and they ruled on behalf of the nuns, okay, they ruled on behalf of the Little Sisters of the Poor that saying that they did not have to provide contraception, that there is a religious exemption from the mandate to provide contraception coverage for in the insurance plans of some of these organizations. And so a lot of people are very upset about this. A lot of the media headlines, they're very upset about this. They said that the court ruled against women, that the court ruled that it's okay to deny women access to birth control. The headlines are, you know, talking about how it's fine for, you know, religious people to impose their will by denying women access to birth control. And those are, that's all incorrect. Those are all fear-mongering headlines in order to make people think about this in a particular way, which is not reality. So I just want to walk through this really quick because I actually do agree completely with this Supreme Court decision and I want to explain the reasons why. So the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States says, and I will read this word for word, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of, pr- of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. And the reason why I'm reading that and the reason why I'm pointing this out is because this is the first 
Amendment of the United States Constitution. And the first thing that it talks about in the First Amendment of the Constitution is freedom of religion. Freedom of religion is spoken of before freedom of speech. It is spoken of before freedom of the press or even freedom to peaceably assemble. It is the first thing that our Constitution gives us the right to. And there is a reason for that. This is what this country was founded on. It was founded by people who were seeking religious freedom. I know that everyone loves the talking points right now, saying that this country was founded on slavery and it was founded on racism. Okay, that is not true. People who look at this and say we there's a separation of church and state and you know this is not a Christian country, that we are a country full of people of many religions. Here is the historical reality. This country was founded based on the idea of freedom of religion. It is not just, as many people try to point it out, that it is not just about Congress or the government not establishing a religion or endorsing a religion. It is also about the free exercise thereof. We have the right to freely exercise our religious beliefs. Another misconception or I think misunderstanding about what this right guarantees to us is this idea that people seem to have that, you know, okay, yeah, that means that you can go to whatever church that you want. It means that you can pray to whatever God that you want. It means that you can read whatever, you know, Bible or Quran or religious text that you want. And then it, and, and that's where it ends. Okay, no, that is inaccurate. The freedom of religion, the freedom to practice your religion means that you are free to do that in every aspect of your life. You are free to live your life according to your conscience and according to your faith. And that applies in every single aspect of your life. And the government is not allowed to make any laws that prohibit you from practicing your religion the way that you see fit. That means that if you have a religious group like the Little Sisters of the Poor who do not want to pay for some a contraception, to pay for a medication that they find that is morally reprehensible, it is against their religion, they should not have to do that. Now, one of the arguments that are made is that it, it is in fact the nuns who are interfering in, a, in the woman's rights, that they are taking away the woman's rights because they are refusing to pay for her birth control or they are what they keep saying is that they're denying her access to her birth control. That is a lie. Anytime you see a headline or a news article or a politician or anybody stand up and say, this is denying women access to birth control, that is a lie, okay? It is not. There is not a law in this country. There is no one who is proposing, as far as I am aware, of any laws in this country to make birth control illegal. Nowhere. They are trying to make birth control, various birth control methods illegal. It is not prohibiting someone from obtaining something to say that I will not pay for that thing. So I am not paying for any of the groceries of anybody listening to this podcast right now. Does that mean that I am preventing you from getting groceries? Does that, does that mean that I am preventing your family from eating tonight because I'm not paying for your groceries? Of course not. Of course not. The Second Amendment of the Constitution guarantees my right as a citizen to bear arms. Does that mean that if you do not pay for my gun, if you do not give me money to go out and buy a gun, that you are preventing me from ac having access to a firearm, which is a constitutional right of mine? Of course not. Nobody believes that. And yet, for some strange reason, the idea that if unless we make these little old lady nuns pay for my a woman's birth control, that means that they are preventing her from getting birth control. No, they are not. That is not what this is about. Just because somebody doesn't pay for your access to something is not the same thing as somebody barring access. If you are a person who works for the Little Sisters of the Poor or for any other religious institution who 
has decided that they're not going to include birth control coverage in their insurance coverage because of religious reasons. You can still go buy birth control and you can even buy that birth control with the money that you earn in your paycheck from that institution. But they are not obligated to pay specifically for your birth control in their insurance plans. The other thing that I think is really important to keep in mind is that this is something, you know, we have at will employment in the United States of America. Okay, it is not like the government is going to women and saying, you are being forced, you know, I, we are assigning you a job and you, we are assigning you the little sisters of the poor organization to work for. That's not how any of this works. I have had many jobs in my life. And whenever I have sat down and had a job offer presented to me, the company that I worked for sat down and they went through the job offer. They said, this is how much you are going to get paid. This is your vacation time that we are providing for you. This is your insurance coverage and what that covers and what it doesn't cover. And it is up to me to say yes or no to working for that organization. You don't have to work for that organization. And there have been times where I have not been happy with something in the job offer and I have declined it. Okay, there have been times where my husband has gotten a job offer and he says, nope, that's not going to work for me. And he has declined it. There is nothing forcing you to work for one of these religious institutions. Okay, so this idea that this is somehow a violation of women's rights, I just don't see it. Another part of the argument that I'm hearing a lot of is, for example, they would say, oh, well, some of these institutions, you know, they're willing to cover Viagra, but they're not willing to cover birth control or they're willing to do this and not that. And, you know, that's just wrong. Here's the thing about all this. okay? you are welcome to think that that is wrong. It doesn't change the situation and it doesn't mean that those people have to change what they cover. It just doesn't. People's rights in this country are not dependent on other people understanding why they want to express those rights. We saw this very clearly, for example, when the churches were being closed down amid the coronavirus lockdown. And there were a lot of people who were out there saying, I want my church to open up. I want to be able to go and worship in my church again with my community again. And I saw a lot of people stand up and say, why do you need that? Why do you need that? Why do you need to go to church? Okay, everybody saw this from people across the country who were very upset at the idea of churches wanting to reopen. They said, why do you need to go to church? Okay, you can't you pray in your house? Can't you read your Bible in your house? Do you need to be in a building? And they would ridicule people and they would put people down. Well, here's the reality. You don't need to understand why I need that. You don't. My right to do something is not based on your understanding of it. Just like if I, if you stand up and you give a speech tomorrow about how you think that Christians are stupid or Christians just believe in fairy tales or whatnot. Okay. If I turn around and I say, well, why do you, why do you need to use your first amendment rights to the free, to freedom of speech to be so mean or to be so cruel or to put other people down? Why do you need to do that? You know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I think of it. It doesn't matter what you think of it. These are rights that we have and people don't need to understand it. You might look at the Little Sisters of the Poor or any other Catholic or Christian institution and you might say, I do not agree with the fact that you don't want to cover birth control. I do not agree with the fact that this church doesn't want to perform gay marriages. I don't agree with that. That's fine. You absolutely have the right to not agree with it. You absolutely have the right to not attend that church. You absolutely have the right to not work for that organization. But the idea that people's rights are dependent upon the understanding of other people, that is not the purpose of the rights that we have in this country. That is not the purpose of our Bill of Rights and of the Constitution, which protects these things. So I'm very happy to see that the Supreme Court got this one right. And I hope that this is something that they continue to uphold in the future. And it is pretty consistent with prior Supreme Court cases over and over again. We do see that 
if there's one thing that the Supreme Court in this country seems to have been getting right over the course of its history is the fact that they are giving the freedom of religion the due respect that it deserves as, once again, the first right that is outlined in the Bill of Rights of this country. All right, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps each and every week. Also, please share this episode with a family member or friend so we can help spread the word. You can follow me on Twitter at JJAnAmerican. You can also message this show by sending emails to JJ at I'mJustAnAmerican.com. Thank you for taking a moment out of your day to talk about schools reopening and religious freedoms. I'll be back next time for a deep dive into issues plaguing American life from the perspective of just an American. Music for this podcast was written and performed by Michael Beatty. You can find him on Twitter at Michael Beatty 3